Max Verstappen dominates the Belgian Grand Prix with a storming drive from 13th on the grid to start the countdown to his second world title. This is the F1 Strategy Report. My name is Michael Laminato and this is round 14, the Belgian Grand Prix. Powered by LeaveCal. Keep track of employee leave and make resource planning easy. Search LeaveCal in the Zero App Store. Max Verstappen has never won a race like this. Spa-Francorchamps always looked likely to be a Red Bull racing track, but the Dutchman wielded his car to absolute perfection to completely dominate the weekend. Starting 13th on the grid with an engine penalty was no impediment to his success. He passed cars on the first lap like they were witches' hats, and by lap 8 he was third, his pre-race minimum target. Leader Carlos Sainz attempted to delay the inevitable with an early first pit stop, but Ferrari's massive pace disadvantage meant it was all in vain. By lap 18, Verstappen was up into the lead, and he went on to beat teammate Sergio Perez by 18 seconds, and the next best Sainz by almost half a minute. Will there be any catching Red Bull Racing from here? To talk us through Max Verstappen's most dominant win of the season so far, I'm joined by Brazilian F1 correspondent Julianne Serasoli. Julianne, how are you going? I'm doing good. I'm talking to you from Zandvoort already. It's sunny, it's windy, and I think it's going to be a very cool weekend. But let's talk about Belgium, shall we? <laughs> I kind of am just looking forward to the <laughs> Netherlands because we all know what happened in Belgium. It can only be better this weekend, can't it? But yes, we do have to look backwards a little bit. I've been saying this sort of all week. I'm kind of at least a little bit kind of perversely pleased that Max Verstappen won by such a big margin in Belgium over Sergio Perez. Not because I don't like Sergio Perez. I like Sergio Perez fine. But at least it meant we could see that this was not just about the car, but also about the driver. Is this the biggest win, the most comprehensive win of Max Verstappen's career? Oh, 100%, 100%. Because the way he mastered the car, the, the way he set up the car to have a, a neutral, cra- neutral car in a track in which sometimes you need a car that's a bit understeery, sometimes a bit oversteery, but he managed to be in a class of his own with a neutral car in Spa. That's big and it, it speaks volumes about his talent. It is. It feels like we're seeing a, almost a little bit of a new era of Verstappen, the reigning champion Verstappen, I suppose. But there is the Red Bull side of this as well. And we'll unpack maybe part of the reason why other teams were not even close to Red Bull. But I thought it was interesting Christian Horner said afterwards that this was the best he's seen his team since, well, the Sebastian Vettel era, really, the previous uh, golden era of Red Bull. Is that the team, do you think, starting to get back into the groove? Was it, or was it a little bit of a coincidence with the track? Or, or is this really Red Bull finally getting back to those days where it was just winning everything? If he's talking about how the team is operating, it's not from now. The team has been operating really well since they were in winning races, since Mercedes were dominating in terms of strategy, uh, all the calls, pit stops. The team really works very, very well. And it showed throughout this season. For most of the season, they didn't have the best car. Ferrari had the best car for most of the season, even though it's been evening out uh, it, it, since, I don't know, maybe Baku. They are getting back at it. But because of the, op- the operational side is so good, they have this advantage that they, they have now. And of course, Ferrari did help a lot. <laughs> but you do have... On it, but we've been talking about Ferrari's mistakes because they are very clear. What is not as clear is how Red Bull continually get it right. 
every time and they did it again throughout the, the weekend. The only uh, moment in which they got it wrong was with the car set up in a few races, uh, like in you know, Austria, for example, but their car is a bit harder to, to set up. So then you understand it's harder, so it's easier to get it wrong. But even so, I think it was one or two races that that happened. So the team has been operating in a very, very big level. The question mark is, and it's what Ferrari are talking about and Mercedes as well, is how are they uh, inside the, the budget cap because they are bringing stuff continually and especially they are bringing stuff in the floor which costs money. That is the question that I think we are going to hear a lot about in the, the last part of the season. Yeah, and we'll get to some of that a little bit later on because that feels like it could become one of the storylines of this later part of the season with some pretty big upgrades supposedly still to come in the next month or two. The execution of the team has been really good. I also thought the execution of Max in those first few laps, just to go back to him, was also really impressive. I couldn't help but remember, oh, I can't remember the year though, mind you, but Max has had some crashes here, particularly at the start of the first lap uh, with Kimi Raikkonen in Spa. Or that would have been, goodness, that would have been maybe 2017, let's say. Yeah, I think I think he had a really bad run from the end of 17 mm. and the beginning of 18. Yeah. And then he was in in Monaco in 18 that he had the last mm. crash. And it was when Christian Horner said, okay, your dad is not coming to all races. Your manager is not coming to all races. We're going to do an experiment here. Your dad comes to one, your manager comes to one, and you are alone in one. So they did that. And after that, he stopped crashing. It was amazing. Yes. And yet, and we've seen obviously that improvement since then. It's not as if this is a suddenly new, very great Max Verstappen that just woke up in Belgium last Sunday morning. But the way he managed what was a pretty chaotic first lap of this Grand Prix, I thought was very representative of this new Max Verstappen. You know, especially after last year, we saw, while well, his racecraft was, was, racecraft was obviously still very good last year, there was that sort of somewhat being prone to, to losing, uh, I guess, a little bit of composure in the heat of battle with Lewis Hamilton. We know they crashed a couple of times, for example. And obviously, there's not really a live championship at this point in time. You know, he's got a very comfortable lead. But I really liked seeing the way he managed those opening laps of the race to ensure that he was going to get the maximum result. He knew it was on the table. Yeah, I think it helps the fact that he had a healthy 80-point lead going into that race. So if he crashed out, you wouldn't be the same as in Saudi Arabia when he crashed in the in qualifying, for example. So he still tends to be more error prone when he's under a lot of pressure which is normal come on it's the the hardest thing to to clean from your act but yes i agree with you he was fantastic i was gobsmacked watching that first lap and the way he got a lot of uh, a lot of overtake, overtakes done in the last corner in the bus stop chicane because his car was not rolling usually in that corner, the first corner, the car goes really oversteery to be in the right place to do the second part of the corner. And his car wasn't doing that. And he was controlling to get a better exit and then get the overtake done. It was beautifully done. There's one thing I want to just distract from here before we get into the difference between Red Bull and Ferrari over the course of this race. And that was this was... Even before the race started, a big weekend for penalties. Uh, we've got we had a whole bunch of cars starting from the back of the grid. They can't all start from the back of the grid, of course, and that's why 
Max Verstappen started 14th and then actually 13th when Pierre Gasly had an electrical problem on the grid that pulled him off the grid and left a, a, an empty spot there for Max to fill. But there was some some confusion, I guess, over how these penalties were going to play out. Most of the drivers in the end were ordered by qualifying order, except for Valtteri Bottas. Now, we didn't get to see this turn into anything, of course, because he was punted out of the race pretty early by Nicholas Latifi. But there was confusion about the way like the penalty, penalty rules are, are being implemented. Valtteri Bottas got 40 places worth of penalties but didn't get sent to the back of the grid. Is this a weird loophole that should be fixed, considering, really, Bottas had the same number of engine changes as everyone else, but somehow managed to slip through the net? Yeah, 100%. I think a lot of people in the paddock didn't know this was possible until the penalties started to come. And then you will see, oh, the guy has 10 plus 15, and that in Formula 1 doesn't count as more than 15. I think it's the only place in the world (laughs) in which this math... Uh, kind of works so I think it's going to be close Uh, I think they already said they were looking into it and it it would be something all teams would agree easily because that doesn't look good (laughs) because they they know especially these teams who are um, in the already in the fourth engine because when you start to get the the fifth the fifth ICE for example turbocharger then it's five positions only and then you are able to change only three parts of your engine and it's going to be 15 and then you change other three and it's more 15 and it doesn't add up so when this will start to happen in the second half of the season because everybody is now uh, with at least four engines so yes this needs to be closed as soon as possible and you've got on top of that the the gearbox as well which adds five plus five so we need to make this math work which is like it doesn't matter how if you're doing everything at once if you're doing in, d- in different stages if it, it's more than 15 it's back of the grid this is a very simple and clear rule they clear this out remember with the mclaren honda days they had like 40 something 50 something and it was a bit <laughs> ridiculous they fixed that but they fixed that by opening a way of getting away from that and they need to close it let's bring it to being simple because then i think it solves the problem everybody goes to the back of the grid it's the qualifying order that the counts. It's like another pole position, and I think that's clear enough. Yeah, I think that otherwise made sense. It was interesting to see, though, Q3 essentially deciding all the Q1 <laughs> positions. It's a bit of a novelty in Formula 1, but that's something that tends to happen in Formula 1. Weird stuff. Let's have a look at the, the pace gap now. Red Bull to Ferrari. It was bigger than I think anyone expected. There was suspicion this was going to be more of a Red Bull track anyway, just because of the layout of it but certainly not to the extent nearly eight-tenths of a second in qualifying between Verstappen and Sainz. Not that anyone was paying too much attention to where Verstappen was qualifying, given he, he got that penalty. There was a lot of speculation leading up to this weekend about this technical directive. It's been something that's been hanging over the sport for a couple of months now since the FIA proposed to introduce it, delayed it till Belgium. Essentially, it's about the stiffness of the floor and, and, and making sure that it's measured sort of consistently all across that. There was a lot of talk that this might affect the front-running teams, Red Bull and Ferrari in particular. Mercedes was a little bit hopeful it might bring them back down to earth a little bit. Well, maybe it brought Ferrari back down to earth a little bit, but certainly it didn't affect Red Bull. Is, is, there, any, is there any suspicion at this point in time that 
that that had a, any kind of influence in the competitive order this weekend? I think we need to wait because Spa is always a bit different. Spa and Monza were a bit different. They were, both of them will be very tough races for Ferrari because when you strip down downforce, Ferrari is still a much more draggy car than the Red Bull. So they were going to be slower anyway. And what, what possibly we've seen in Spa was that the Red Bull didn't have to uh, go higher with the car as much as the others would have to because of Eau Rouge, uh, because of that compression uh, um, on Eau Rouge. They, they all have to uh, rise up their cars. And I think the Red Bull didn't have to do it as much because they have... The, the back of the car, they've been working with the back of the car with the rake for so many years. I know the rake is not a thing anymore, but they know how to manage the right height. And I think this might have played out. We don't know yet, but it was just one race after the technical directive and one race in the circuit, which is very specific. I think if the same happens here in Zandvoort, then I think it's a different matter because Zandvoort is not about cutting down downforce. It's a, it's a track in which Ferrari should do well. It will be an interesting test. And, and to cast our minds actually back a little bit to look forward, it's the second race in a row that, that Ferrari seems a little bit dumbfounded by why it was so far off the pace. Because in Hungary, it wasn't quite so bad. They made some mistakes in qualifying that meant George Russell got pole. And they obviously made some, some strategic areas in the race that meant neither car was on the podium. But afterwards, they said, well, the car was just slower and we need to figure out why that was. It was the first weekend of the season. They didn't understand why they were slower. This weekend, again, there were reasons why they were slower. We know there were some tyre deck issues and obviously that Red Bull car was just very good on it in its own right. But again, seemed like they weren't completely clear as to why the gap was so large. Now we're going to Zandvoort, as you said, that's more of a hungry style track. Should we still expect that that the car will be quick there, given it seems like suddenly Ferrari's lost all of its confidence in its machine? Yeah, I agree with you. But at the same time, you've got the temperatures playing out. Uh, in Hungary, it got very cold out of a sudden. And in Spa, it was the other way around. It got really warm uh, on Sunday. And here, it changes all the time. It's the kind of weather that changes all the time. But it looks like it's going to be stable. Stable in like low 20s but sunny so that could lead up to a warm uh, track and let's see how Ferrari uh, works in, in these conditions because when the temperature goes up and down during the weekend it's easy for a team to get a bit lost in the setup. Yeah, that's something we absolutely saw in Belgium as well wasn't it because the, on Friday it was kind of cold and damp and even rained r- relatively heavily I suppose at times and then it sort of cleared up progressively over the course of the weekend. That that uh, tyre wear or tyre dig problem that Ferrari seemed to be suffering with particularly Carlos Sainz sort of had to drive to a lap time in the end. Towards the end of the race, it looked like he was even going to be passed by George Russell until Russell made some mistakes and lost some tyre temperature. Do you think that's starting to become one of the weaknesses of the Ferrari? It was earlier in the season a little bit of a problem, front uh, front tyre in particular. Is that just down to that poor setup, do you think, from Friday? Or is there potentially something more in this for Ferrari? Yeah, that's, it's been happening since the, the start of the season. Sometimes it was an advantage, depending on temperature. So when the temperature goes really high, Ferrari does really well. When it goes lower because they don't put as much uh, 
energy in the tire and then they they have this kind of problem and they have a, a problem with their car a fundamental problem they have with the car is the balance front to back so sometimes you have very uh, high temperatures in the front and they try to play out with the the setup to correct that and they overcorrect that depending on the, the track temperature they find in the race so that's why it's so complicated they don't it's of all the, the, the things that Ferrari, the Mercedes did with the suspension in the back in the, in the past years, like DAS, everything was to even out front to back temperature. And that, because that is a problem with Formula One cars. And this is a, a, a part of the car development that Ferrari haven't been dealing particularly well. This is probably, it has to do with suspension. And that's why a lot of people are talking about the Red Bull suspension. It must be the suspension that is the, the, the secret or the thing that is different from other cars because they don't seem to have this kind of front-to-back temperature problem that Ferrari has. And worth noting there, as a result of that, it seems like Ferrari wasn't sure exactly which way to go with its rear wing, ended up going with more downforce, which was more drag on the Ferrari rather than the better straight line speed, and it either way cost them. So it seems like there was really no way for them to win looking at the setup compromise you need with this track. I want to look ahead to that last part of the race now when, of course, the, ra- oh, the race was decided extremely early, in fact, way after <laughs> the race was decided in Max Verstappen's favour. But looking at Charles Leclerc's recovery, now he had... Unfortunately, a compromised race because at the end of the first lap, he was right behind Max Verstappen. In fact, that's what undid him in the end because he copped almost certainly Max Verstappen's visor into his brake duct, overheated the brakes, need to make an early stop. Still recovered up to what should have been fifth when he decided, or the team decided, I think he wasn't completely on board with it, to make a pit stop for the fastest lap. Now, up until this point, Ferrari's execution seemed pretty good, didn't it? In fact, someone put to me rather uncharitably up to this point, Ferrari had gone four weeks without making a strategy mistake, <laughs> which is a little bit mean-spirited, but that's, that is the way it is. Talk me through what happened here, because ultimately, no, Leclerc ended up losing that place on penalties to Alonso. It all looked a little bit embarrassing. Is it as bad as it looks for Ferrari in this little move? Was this just a classic Ferrari mistake? So it wasn't a classic, really, really, really bad idea, but it started in a bit of a weird way when they called it Plan G <laughs> instead of Plan F, because when the fastest lap is, uh, is when they're stopping for the fastest lap, they usually call it Plan F. Now we know there is a plan G for the fastest lap. Maybe they will have to use other letters. So it could be plan F plus two minus three. They, they will start to come up with something like that. When you decide to stop for a fastest lap, you try not to risk everything, right? Because every stop is a risk. But probably they saw, okay, he might come back behind Fernando but he is going to overtake in Belgium is is a track in which you overtake really easily we saw that during the whole race so maybe it's not like they they got the maths right wrong and they thought he was going to come back in front of Fernando but at the same time it's a big risk so they ended up wanting to take one point away from Max and make Shall uh, gained one point and then Shall lost two points because he had this overheating issue with the sensor and that made him uh, go over the speed limit. Uh, it's just, we have an expression in Brazil, if, like if you lost for one, you lose for 100 and it's fine. I mean, you lost anyway. 
and they're losing the championship. They are a long way back in the championship. But still, I don't understand why uh, facing this amount of risk for one point, two points. You know, it's not as if the championship is going to be decided by that. Yeah, and the risk profile changes as well when you realise they knew that there was a chance that the pit limiter might not work in the way it intended. And I know Mattia Bedotto said it was even less than one kilometre an hour, but that's still speeding at the end of the day. But they knew there was a chance that the pit limiter wasn't going to work the way they expected it. And lo and behold, it was a pit stop they didn't need to need to make. Now, yeah, he had done two pit stops already and, and it worked fine, but they didn't need to make that last one. As a result, it sort of looks unfortunate. But I guess at the end of the day, as you say there, you know, lose by one point, lose by 100. Maybe it sounds mean to say, but it it almost doesn't really matter at this point, does it? Is it is the, should the pressure be off Ferrari a little bit at this point, given that almost certainly nothing they're going to be they're going to do is going to be able to make any difference to this championship? Yeah, it doesn't matter in terms of the championship, but it matters for Ferrari. It was important for Ferrari to have a clean race in terms of strategy, because we are seeing a lot of frustrated. We hear a lot of frustrated voices from coming from Ferrari, the engineers, the way they are talking to the drivers. They need to have a clear race and the drivers need to have a clear race so they can build up the trust a little bit more. So that why, that's why it wasn't the time to, to risk. Yeah, it is a good call. Now, let's have a look at some of those uh, later comments from Ferrari. You mentioned them earlier on, this argument a little bit about the cost cap or a potential argument. It hasn't started the argument yet, but the first, uh, first words have been said, I suppose. And that's Mattia Bernotto sort of suggested that the rate of upgrades being brought to the Red Bull car, and Toto's kind of got on board here, but I guess, you know, you may as well get on board. Why not? Uh, it seems suspicious, essentially, that it couldn't possibly all be within the cost cap. There's also a rumour that in the next couple of races, Red Bull's going to bring a new lighter chassis, and both teams have said there's no way they would ever be able to afford to do that. There was always the risk with the cost cap, wasn't there? Not a risk big enough not to bring one in, but there was always going to be a risk that it was going to become an arena for argument. And I mean, even Christian Horner, disingenuous though he often is, said <laughs> earlier in the year that, you know, it could. we don't want a championship decided in a courtroom or by accountants, I think is what he said. How much potential do you think is in this? And, you know, we can only assume, obviously, that everyone is abiding by the cost cap because neither of us is accountants who have seen the books. But do you think that is something that could end up becoming a, a major topic when we get to the end of the year? I'm sure it will be, uh, but I don't know if how far we can get from the this talking, you know, because uh, the way it is going to be uh, policed is that after the season, after the year ends, they're going to go through the books for every every team. So if a team overspent, it's something we're going to know and we're going to be discussing in 2023. And maybe politically, this is not a, a good call to be discussing this. And I, I don't know, maybe... Rebo are betting on that. There are some concerns. So let me put it in numbers because it seems they, since the, the beginning of the year, they go and list every upgrade and they know how it costs and they are putting on each other's books. Oh, so they spent this, they spent this. They've been doing this. There are people going up and down the paddock just doing the, this accounting for for the other team during the season. I know this being this has been happening since the first race. So for a new chassis that they had to homologate, if that that is true and it appears to be, we're talking about two or three million. So it's not pocket money, even for a Formula One team. But there, there's a hole in the rule 
that if you go over by 5%, you uh, only you have to pay uh, for the FIA. You don't lose points. There's nothing else. But the teams don't know how much you have to pay. <laughs> and they want to know this because this is not written in the rules they're like okay if I know how much this is then I'll go over by 5% and be penalized having to pay to the FIA so there is this discussion as well and the teams do want to know how much is this uh, this, this tip uh, because uh, they will be pretty much looking forward to overspend by by five percent it is going to be very interesting it's a new new era for formula one in that respect and i guess one will have to wait to see next season uh can only be ugly really can't it but look let's look forward to that i suppose a couple of other teams i want to tick off before we wrap this one up i do want to talk about mercedes because this is another team that well felt pretty disappointed at the end of this weekend because in hungary they seem to have a pretty good weekend admittedly some of that was because again ferrari dropped the ball in hungary and as a result mercedes got a, a double podium finish optimism that they could be closer this weekend even if it wasn't necessarily going to be the greatest track for them ended up pretty close to two seconds off the pace in qualifying george russell was more than two seconds behind the pole time and again we saw in the race okay the car was a little bit closer but Still not really where it needs to be. I got the sense sort of this weekend that it felt as though Mercedes was a little bit dispirited, almost like they're just ready now for the year to end, losing a little bit of hope. Is that the sense you're getting now that they seem to continue to turn up to races after they make breakthroughs or they think they make breakthroughs and it turns out that the car is still not performing? Yeah, but they still need to get on top of this car to understand what's going to happen next year. So they have to keep working on that because they are not going to restart from scratch they still have to to work on on this concept what i feel for mercedes is that it's a complete mess they a number of times they don't know simply don't know why the car reacts the way it does and what i've been seeing from lewis hamilton this weekend was like he's very pretty much ready to focus on next year he's like i cannot wait to drive next year's car so he has thrown uh, up the towel uh, but mercedes this, this weekend of course the, the track is longer so when you have when you are like eight tenths of the pace uh, you're gonna be further away from from pole in a track like this also on Saturday it was really cold the track was really cold and we know the Mercedes they don't like that so uh, many things just highlighted the the downside of Mercedes this weekend so we should put that into account I still think we are going to see a Mercedes car winning race this season oh that's an interesting call I was having this debate yesterday actually and I I'm, I, I feel less convinced, not because they've gotten worse or anything like that, but just because I thought the because win... Because the Red Bull. <laughs> well, yes, partly the Red Bull, yes. And there's no reason to make mistakes. But also, I thought they would get a win because they would figure out the car and not that it would become a winning car, but that it would become consistently third. And so, you know, when circumstances happen, they'd be able to sneak on. But it just seems too unpredictable. But I guess when you've got Ferrari there, I mean, that's essentially two cars that are probably, you could always count on trying to finish ahead of, right? Like, it's always something going to go on. But I don't know. I've lost a little bit of confidence in that. If a car is unpredictable, it means that it can do really well in one point. So that's that's why I I still think they're going to win the race. Interesting. We will see. We will see. A couple of other ones I just want to touch on. We saw some great recoveries. Obviously, Max Verstappen was a great recovery in this race. 
but Pierre Gasly coming from pit lane to finish in the top 10 had some great undercuts. That was his strategy throughout the race to make sure he emerged ahead of Alex Albon, who was essentially the cork in the bottle for so many drivers. Esteban Ocon, too, had really great pace. In the end, had to be told not to pass Fernando Alonso late in the race. I've, I've been thinking he's been having a little bit of an underrated season, uh, Esteban Ocon. This was another great race for him. But I want to compare them, particularly Alpine, to McLaren, which had another pretty underwhelming race. Third time this year, both cars have finished but not scored points. Now, uh, we know, for example, in Daniel Ricciardo's case, who finished behind Lando Norris despite him starting ahead of Lando Norris. Uh, he had uh, the wrong rear wing on because it was a problem with the previous rear wing. Uh, we also know that Daniel's obviously cutting, having problems with this year's car, well, all of the McLaren cars, it turns out. But how much does this say, uh, talk about, I guess, the problems McLaren is experiencing? Because Alpine is supposed to be its battle. Even Alpha Tauri should be behind it sort of by rides. But was this just another really bad race for illustrating that McLaren car has some, some fairly big problems? Uh, again, I think it's a, it's a track-dependent kind of thing. Although uh, Alpine's development has been really good, I think Alpine has understood what this season is all about, but what these new cars are all about. If you have a, a car that works well to have uh, very good straight-line speed, then you're going to overtake because it's so much easier to overtake these cars. This is something you have to work on. It's important to have good top speed. And Alpine have worked uh, to have good top st- speed along uh, throughout the season. And they have been getting there. So when you strip down downforce, they are super, super quick in the straights. Uh, so they really, really got these new rules right. Whereas M- McLaren, they didn't do it. So McLaren are better in a high downforce kind of track. So they should do better in Zandvoort. Although Landon Norris did point out that Zandvoort was the worst race <laughs> by some margin last year. Uh, so he didn't know how it was going to pan out with this with car, but it should be a lot better. But still, I think with the developments, they, they had, Alpine, they had from Baku onwards, they put little bits in the car every race. Uh, the, everything worked. Everything made the car better and everything made the car have this uh, better... Uh, uh, top speeds, so the ratio between uh, lift and drag it got it got better for this kind of season. So they have a better car now, and they have a much better car when you have to strip down downforce. So I think Alpine have been doing a, an amazing job, and McLaren a bit lost there. And talking about Daniel, I, I didn't see he, him smiling this weekend. He's really. In a, in a bad, bad moment for, for him, for his career. And I've been talking to a, a lot of people in the paddock and from, even from teams that could hire him and they're like, why would we? Because we don't know what we're getting. That's really sad to see because it's he's a very quick driver, always been a very quick driver. But I think he hasn't worked as hard as other young drivers have been working in terms of engineering. He doesn't understand as deeply uh, the car as, as other guys. It will be interesting to see, of course, how that situation pans out next year. And as a final one, a, a somewhat positive note, I guess, <laughs> it's Alex Elbon. He scored points again. Yes. Good on him. Wonderful stuff from Williams. Great qualifying as well. Uh, maybe it's a bit of a backhanded compliment, but Williams does tend to go well when you take downforce off the car. It's just the nature of them not having enough downforce on it generally. But how much of this can we 
put down to, I guess, that fact that that car is always good in a straight line or as opposed to Alex Albon just really doing a great job with that car this season? I think we had uh, both because he said that the car was because... it was with low, very, very low uh, downforce because it was so windy on on Sunday. It was very hard to drive that car. So the car was sliding around uh, in the corners and he managed to to keep it together. So it was a very, very good race from Alex. And uh, uh, he managed to keep the car on the track and also managed to keep the the tyres because if you slide in the car a lot, the tyres will suffer. So it was a very, very good race by Alex. It was a great race by him and a great race to keep so many other cars behind who were probably unhappy by the end of it. (laughs) Look, it was not the the greatest Belgian Grand Prix, but it was better than last year's Belgian Grand Prix. So I guess we've (laughs) got to take that into our stride and then just look forward to the next one. Julianne, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, it was a pleasure. Thank you. Max Verstappen will win his second title sooner or later. And while the Belgian Grand Prix was no classic race it will be remembered as a crucial one to his championship, not because it was decisive to the points tally, but because he set himself a new benchmark for performance. It's now up to Ferrari and Charles Leclerc to reach for it next season. Thanks very much to Julianne for joining me. The Strategy Report is powered by LeaveCal. Keep track of employee leave and make resource planning easy. Search LeaveCal in the Zero App Store. You can subscribe to The Strategy Report wherever you get your favourite podcasts and don't forget to leave us a rating and a review to help spread the word. You can also find us on social media. The Strategy Report is a beer mogul podcast. Special thanks to Ben Loke from Bloke Designs for the show artwork and our theme music is by Simon Hosford. My name's Michael Laminato and I'll be back next week to debrief the Dutch Grand Prix.